Welcome to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2006. This episode is entitled, What is the Purpose of Wealth? And asks the question, is wealth primarily for our own enjoyment, or is there a higher purpose? And now here's your host, Dr. Gerald Chester. Let me take you back in time to the year 1914. And in 1914 was uh, an interesting year because the winds of war were blowing in Europe. The war had not started, but everybody could see that war was on the horizon. Back in those days, there was no such thing as air freight. The only way that you got product from Europe to the United States or from the United States to Europe was by ship. And as the importers and exporters were dealing with the reality of the probability of war in Europe, then it became very clear that the ships were threatened. So what do you think the importer-exporters did? They started canceling orders. Now, what has that got to do with the United States? Well, the economy in the South, in the United States at that time, was largely uh, based on cotton. Cotton was a very, very popular product. It was used to make our clothes, and Europe bought a lot of cotton from the United States. So in the summer of 1914, let's just suppose that you're a farmer and you're harvesting your crop and you start getting notice that the importers over in Europe are canceling cotton orders. What do you think that does to the price of cotton? The price of cotton dropped like a rock. It dropped in half virtually overnight. Cotton went from over 12 cents a pound to less than 6 cents a pound. The cotton farmers as you might expect, are generally small operators. They're not well capitalized. And what they most of them did was they borrowed money against their next crop to pay their current expenses. So they were on the verge of bankruptcy all the time. And to keep this thing going, they can't afford a hitch in the get-along. They have got to have a constant, steady-state way to sell their crops at a reasonable price every year to be able to pay back their debt. And what typically would happen is at harvest time, that was their payday. They had payday once a year. They harvested their crops, they take it to market, they sell their their cotton, and they get a big check. Then what they do is they go down to the bank and they pay off the bank because they had borrowed money to live on. And now they got a little bit left and they live for a few weeks or months on what they have left, then they run out of money. So what do they do? They go back to the bank and borrow against the next crop. And so that's the cycle they were stuck in. Now suddenly... The price of cotton has dropped to the point this cycle can't continue. So they're in a bind. First thing they do is they go to the banks and investors, and they ask the banks and investors, uh, hey, we're, we're in trouble here. Can you, can you help us? And what do you think the banks and investors said? No way, Jose. We're not going to help you. So then they go to the government, and they ask for a government bailout. Now, this is before the days when government did things like that. So what do you think the government said? No, we're not going to bail you out. So here's the dilemma. Cotton farmers are fixing to go broke. It's a substantial part of the economy in 1914. This is a big deal. How would you respond to this situation, knowing what I just told you? Remember, the cotton prices have fallen in half. The cotton, cotton farmers typically are thinly capitalized and small, small operators and not sophisticated operators either. The federal government's not going to help, and the economy of the South is very dependent on cotton. 
So you're now in this situation. You have to propose a solution to this. Well, let me tell you what happened. The cotton farmers were in dire straits. They really didn't have any good alternatives. They had a bunch of cotton and no real significant market. They couldn't make enough money out of the market to pay off their debts and to, uh, to live. So um, the banks would not be step up. There were no investors that would step up. The, the government wouldn't step up, with one exception. A man by the name of, of Griggs, he was a banker. And Griggs was the kind of guy that um, you and I would want to be like. He was a very godly man. He's a man that really sought the Lord. He's a man that, that looked at business and realized that God was in business, that God cared about business, that God ordained business, that money was not bad, that money was a tool. In fact, he had a worldview about money that was most unique even today. And that is he viewed money as a resource for him to do what God called him to do. Money was a resource for what God called him to do. Now, this man happened to be very wealthy, so he had a lot of money. Now, most of you know there's probably there's five things you can do with money. First of all, you can tithe. That's your first fruits. You can pay your taxes. You can give to others. You can save and invest. And then you can consume. Those are the five things you can do with money. I recently taught a class, and everybody knew the five things. And I said, what do you do first? And what do you think everybody said? Consume. That's the natural response is consume. Uh, I have a, a nephew who just recently got out of college and took a job. He went from being a waiter to being a, uh, a CPA. And, you know, he got a pay increase. Yeah, he got a big pay increase. Yeah, he did. And you know what he discovered when he got that pay increase? He discovered credit. So what did he do? He became a consumer. He went out and bought him a nice, nice car, you know, with lots of debt on it. Well, that's the way we think in our society. Well, that's just not the way Griggs thought. Griggs viewed money as a tool to do what God called him to do, so the last thing he did with his money was consume it. That was the very last thing he did. Now, his family was not deprived. They had what they needed. They lived well, but they lived way below where they could have lived because they spent their money seeking to determine what God wanted them to do with that money. So that's how he viewed money and how he viewed finances. So then Griggs prayed and looked at this situation and realized several things about this situation. First of all, if the war happened, it wouldn't last forever. There would be, eventually be peace and be stability, and, and you'd be able to export cotton to Europe eventually. The next thing he realized was cotton was not readily perishable, that you can store cotton for a long period of time. So he says to himself, you know, what we need to do is provide a way for these people to store the cotton and kind of give them some financing to, to bridge this, this situation that we're in right now. So what he did is he built a 40-acre warehouse. 40 acres. That's about 1.8 million square feet. Cost him a dollar a square foot to build it. Cost him $1.8 million, which today you can, you can take those dollars and multiply it by 10 and you're roughly in the ballpark of what the, today's cost would be. So he built this warehouse and put a very modern fire suppression system in it. And he offered his services. He also had this equipment to compress cotton into very tight bales. I mean, we literally, he could put a bunch of cotton in, into, into a bale and it may weigh three, four, five hundred pounds. He could store lots of cotton in this warehouse. Then, I mean, that's great to do all that, but still you got to have money. 
these cotton farmers need money. So his bank authorizes $30 million to be loaned to the cotton farmers at six cents a pound, which is the going rate. Now here's his logic here. His logic is this. You know, that's the going rate, six cents a pound. I will loan that much money to them. So they at least get what the market is giving right now, and that gives them some money to survive on. I'll put the cotton in the warehouse. I will charge them storage. I will charge them a handling fee. I will charge them insurance. Basically, he picked out the direct costs there, and he charged them for that, a very fair fee for that. He gave them one-year notes with an option for an additional six months. The interest rate was 6%. Now, that alone was extremely kind and gracious of him. Because okay? nobody else was doing that. He alone was doing it. In fact, the day that it was announced, the very next day, he had 3,000 applications for, by, by mail and telegraph. So he was clearly a very popular man. But it was more than that. You see, his perspective on, on money was he was using this money to advance the kingdom of God. How can I help people? So he, he looked at these cotton farmers. He says, I want to help these people. And at the same time, I need to make a profit because his view of stewardship, and he viewed everything he had as belonging to God, and he was the steward of it, and he was going to give an account to God for how he used his money. So he said, okay, what I want to do is bless these people, and yet I need to make a profit. So he brought those two seemingly opposite concepts together, and they were integrated for him, blessing people and making a profit. He was not an opportunist. What would an opportunist done? Hey, I'll buy the cotton from you at six cents a pound. I'll hold it, and when the market comes back, I'll sell it, and I'll make a killing. That's what an opportunist would do. The farmer got his six cents a pound, and that's it, and he probably wound up going broke. But what, what, what Griggs did was this. He says, look, I'll loan you the six cents a pound. In a year, if the market is improved, you can have your cotton and sell it, and you can keep the profit. Okay. If the market has not improved, if it's the same or gone down, I will take the cotton and give you your note back. In other words, I will take the downside and give you the upside. That's what he did. Now, is that not phenomenal? That is unbelievable. I don't know of any banker or investor that would do that today. And yet that's what he did. At 63 years of age... Later on in his life, in his life, his son wrote, a, wrote an autobiography or a biography about his father, and he said what his dad did for the cotton farmers in 1914 was, was unparalleled courage in the history of American business. Nobody that he knew of had ever done anything like that. Phenomenal. Now, you might think, well, that was just a one-time deal, and he grew up as a farmer, and he understood their plight, and he rolled the dice, maybe. But that wasn't the only thing he did. In 1907, the real estate market in Atlanta collapsed. Some of you know about collapsing real estate markets. You were in Dallas 20 years ago when it collapsed. Okay, It's not a fun deal. It's an adventure. Well, it collapsed in Atlanta in 1907. Prices of houses went in half. And what happens when that, when that occurs? People are out of work, can't pay their mortgages. So banks wind up foreclosing, and then you got all this glut of, of real estate on the market, and there's nobody there to buy it. Well, Griggs stepped up to the table. He looked at the situation. He said, you know, this is a temporary situation. This is not a long-term situation. There's a bunch of people hurting out there. 
you know, the market's going to recover. So he instructed his real estate people to buy the houses from those that wanted to sell at the pre-collapse price. In other words, if, if let's say that you had a house, which back then may be in $10,000, which that's what houses cost that back then. I know today they cost millions, but then they cost a whole lot less. So let's say you had a house that cost 10000 and the market collapsed, now it's worth five. Griggs went in and bought it for ten. He held it for a few years. The market came back, and then he sold it for a modest profit. In fact, he even sold it on terms. Let's say you may have actually sold your house to him, and you went through a job search, you found a new job, and now you wanted to buy your house back. You could go buy, back and buy your house back for just slightly more than what you sold it to him for. And when you sold it to him for that $10,000, you got enough out of the house to pay off your debt and have, have some equity. That's what he did in 1907. Now, what banker do you know would do that? I don't know anybody like that. I mean, this is a phenomenal man that thought so differently from you and from me. But he was not confined to business. He integrated Christianity into everything he did. He was a very devout Methodist. Now, I know some of you may know Methodism today is pretty liberal, but back then it was very conservative. And the Methodist church that John and Charles Wesley started was a very solid biblical institution. Very godly people. And so he was part of that movement. The Methodist church was split at the Civil War. There was the Northern Methodist and the Southern Methodist. The Southern Methodist, after the Civil War, had no facility to train pastors. So they were able to procure a grant from a man named Vanderbilt. And they built a university in Nashville, Tennessee called Vanderbilt University. And that university was the training ground for pastors and businessmen and lawyers and teachers for many years for the Methodist Church. In the early part of this of the 20th century, uh, liberals began to infiltrate the, the board of the, Method, of the uh, Vanderbilt University. The charter of Vanderbilt University did not give the Methodist Church tight control over Vanderbilt. The Methodist denomination, the Southern Methodist denomination, was always involved in the management and oversight, but the liberals were able to make their way in. And so gradually, more and more liberal influence was coming into Vanderbilt, which bothered the conservative Methodists. They were really concerned about it. But finally, there was a, a nail in the coffin. A steel magnet came forth. And he says, um, you know, I think professors are underpaid. I bet we have some professors here. They'd probably agree with that. Professors are underpaid. Says, I, I think that they're underpaid, underappreciated. So what I want to do is I want to give a million dollars to Vanderbilt to, for them to use to fund the retirement of their professors. There's one stipulation, though. Your board has to be totally secular. No Christians on your board at all. Well, that was it. When Vanderbilt got that offer, they said, we can't turn down the money. So they severed all relationship with the Methodist. And so now here the Methodists are in uh, the early part of the 20th century in the South and no, no facility to train their pastors. Well, Griggs steps up because Griggs is a man of God. He's always praying and asking God, what do I do with your money that I am stewarding? And so what Griggs did is he realized, you know, we probably need two institutions here. You know, things have changed a lot since the 1870s. Here we are. This was about 1915. And he said, you know, we probably need two. We need one east and west of the Mississippi. 
It turns out that uh, there was a college called Emory College located in Oxford, Georgia, that, that Griggs was very close to. It was a solid institution that was actually founded by his step-grandfather back in the 1840s. So Griggs knew that institution well and knew it was a solid institution. It was a liberal arts school. So Griggs stepped up and said, here's what I'll do. I'll give a million dollars if we move Emory College to Atlanta, and now we name it Emory University, and we add a school of theology, a school of medicine, a school of science. We make a full-blown university out of it. And we will put in the charter of this university that the Methodist denomination, the Southern Methodist denomination, will control this institution. We will be the ruling board. They weren't going to make the same mistake they made in Vanderbilt. And so it's that million-dollar grant that enabled Emory University to be established in Atlanta. Then they said, okay, we need to go someplace west of the Mississippi. And they said, you know, a good place would be Dallas. And they all agreed. And they came to Dallas in the early part of the, of the 1900s and established a university here called Southern Methodist University. And that was the training ground for the Methodist, for their pastors and business people, for years and years under the conservative control of the Southern Methodist. Now, it's not today what it used to be. All of you probably know that. Some of you may have been to SMU. It's not what it was set out to be. In fact, I went on the website just to see if there was anything in there about their heritage. I could find nothing about SMU's heritage on their website. I went out to Emory University and found a lot of information about the heritage of Emory University, which is a sad testimony because I know that Griggs meant for SMU to truly be an institution that would be exemplary of, the, of Christ and walking with Christ in all areas of life. So Griggs was involved in business. He was involved in, in education. He believed strongly that education without a Christian worldview was a license to sin. If you don't train people in biblical values, all you've done is teach them how to do something, but you haven't teach them the motive and the ways to do it properly. So he was big on that throughout his life. He taught Sunday school. He was a very faithful Sunday school teacher, attended church all his life, was a man of God in everything he did. He was even the mayor of Atlanta for a period of time and did a remarkable job in making Atlanta a great city. Now, who is this guy Griggs? I know you're asking, who in the world is this guy? Well, let me tell you a little bit about his history. He was born in 1851. He was born, he was the eighth of 11 children to Samuel and, and, uh, and Martha. And he basically lived on a farm during his early part of his life. His dad was also an entrepreneur. His dad had a, a dry goods store there in the little town where they lived. He also, his dad also had a public office for a while. And in 1848, the predecessor to Dun and Bradstreet actually did a credit report on Griggs's dad's store. And that credit report said he was a very godly man who used his money well. He was a good steward. And you imagine getting a Dun and Bradstreet report like that today? <laughs> So he comes from good stock. He went through the Civil War and it was difficult to get education in Georgia because you know what happened to Georgia during the Civil War. Most of his education came after the war. By the 1870s, he had decided he wanted to be a pharmacist, basically a chemist. And so he went to Atlanta and began to apprentice as a chemist. And he learned to, to mix medicines and prepare medicines and run a pharmacy. By the late 1870s, he had bought his own pharmacy. And he was running his own pharmacy when in 1887, he began to have headaches, really bad headaches. 
And his wife would take him and pour cold water over his head to kind of relieve the headaches, but that was only temporary. He needed a solution. Now, the problem was he was a workaholic, and, but they didn't know what a workaholic was back then. They just got up and worked, you know, all day long. They worked six days a week, and then they went to church on Sunday, and then they went to church on, on Wednesday night. That's just the way they lived. But that's really what was going on. So he was looking for some remedy, and he heard about a remedy that a Dr. John Pemberton had of headaches. So he went to Dr. Pemberton's drugstore, and he got a prescription for this medicine. And I don't know that it required a prescription, but he got this medicine. He took the medicine and gave him almost instant relief from this headache. He said, wow, this is really good. And being an entrepreneur like he was, he said, you know, I, I need to figure out some way to manufacture this. Because at this time, he had a retail and a wholesale drugstore. He basically was selling to retail customers and to other drugstores all kinds of different prescriptions. And, and drugs of all types. And they had all kinds of snake oil stuff back then. It's, some of it worked, some of it didn't. But this headache work, headache medicine worked. And so he gradually began to talk to Dr. Pemberton and other people that had the rights to this product. And he began to acquire those rights. Over about a four-year period, he acquired the rights from Dr. Pemberton, who was a Civil War veteran and who was, in, it was nearing the end of his life. And Dr. Pemberton had, oh, he had dozens of different products that he, he, had, he had created and manufactured. So, you know, selling one product to, to Griggs was no big deal. So he made a deal with Griggs and sold him the rights to this, this product, this headache medicine. So Griggs was excited. He begins to, you know, promote it. Griggs was an unusual man in terms of marketing and branding. He understood marketing and branding. You know, back in those days, most people thought, you know, advertising, that kind of thing was a waste of money. And they had no concept of branding, but he understood it. So he began to develop the logo, and he began to really promote this headache medicine to all of his, the people in his chain that he was networking with. So there's your network right there. They were networking this drug, and uh, it was going great. One day, a man walks into one of, his, one of the pharmacies that was owned by another pharmacist, and uh, he says to the pharmacist, can you put that medicine in some water? And the pharmacist says, uh, well, I've got some soda water over here. So he goes over and he puts the medicine in the, in, the, in the glass and puts soda water in it. And the guy drinks the medicine and soda water. He says, hey, this is pretty good. Well, word got back to Griggs about this. And Griggs had already been thinking that, you know, I'm not sure that headache medicine is the best way to, to sell this product. Maybe we ought to think about selling it as a beverage. And so he began to experiment it and tinker with it. And about that time, here comes the report about this man and this pharmacy that actually had the pharmacist put the, the, the medicine in the water and how good it tasted and everything was beginning to come together. So he began to, to network with his, his relationships and say, hey, we need to sell this in the soda fountain, not at the drug counter. So they began now to market this thing over the soda fountain and soon it began to really go big time. So in 1892... Asa Griggs Chandler formed the Coca-Cola Company. He formed it with 100 shares of stock. He kept most of the stock for himself. He gave one share of stock to about a dozen different people that were fellow pharmacists in the area to encourage them to sell his product. And so he began then to take the logo, and he took it nationwide. In fact, he took it international. And he began to promote his product all across the country. And over the next 24 years, built an incredible company. And that's how he got his wealth. 
And it was this experience of building this company and watching God bless with this incredible inflow of cash and assets and being humbled and realizing this isn't me. This isn't my doing. I'm being blessed by Almighty God with these financial resources for a reason. And he began to pray and ask God, why is it you're giving me all this money to steward? And it's through that prayer and through that seeking of God that led him to do the things he did with the universities, with the church, which he gave millions of dollars to the church, with the real estate market in 1907, with the cotton farmers in 1914. Before he died in 1927, about two years before he died, he calls an attorney in. And he says to the attorney, I'm trying to give away everything I have to bless and advance the kingdom of God. Here's the key to a safety deposit box at the bank. I want you to prepare a document. I am going to assign everything in that box to Emory University. Now, he had already given Emory University $6 million over a course of time. So, signs the document, give the key to the chancellor. The chancellor goes down to the box, opens up the box. Inside the box is a million dollars worth of securities. For Emory University. He gave Emory University alone $7 million over the course of his life. This was a man that understood stewardship at a whole other level. A man that was not about himself. A man that was about living for God in every area of his life. A man that was using every resource, every talent, every dollar bill, every ounce of energy to advance the kingdom of God. Now that's what we should be about. Can we get a vision to do that? Can we get a vision to steward our resources like Asa Chandler? Or are we going to live and is it all about us and me and my money and what I need and what I want? That's not the way he lived. He sacrificed personally. He put his neck on the line at 63 years old for those, those cotton farmers to help them in a very difficult situation. Do we have the courage to do that? That's what his son asked the question in, his, in the biography of his dad. Who's got the courage to live that way? Lord, give us the grace to learn to live that way. We hope you've been challenged by this podcast to consider biblical work principles in the workplace. For more information, visit strategieswork.com. Or to give feedback or sign up for our newsletter, please send an email to podcast at strategieswork.com. Thank you for joining us for this podcast, and we look forward to seeing you next time.